Jesus isn't in heaven waiting to rule. Jesus is in heaven reigning right now, ruling right now over all things for the good of his people and for the glory of his Father forever. Jesus reigns right now. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm not sure what else that could mean. And because he has all authority, therefore, he says, his disciples are to go and make disciples of all nations. France says again here, Jesus' universal lordship now demands a universal mission. Close quote. That's exactly right. And that's why these instructions are so different from the ones he gave his disciples back in Matthew chapter 10. Back there, he told them to go only to the 12 tribes of Israel. But here now, they're being sent to every person, every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is Lord of all now, and that news needs to get out. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. That is good news. That is the good news. And that message needs to get out to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet earth. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 28. This is the last chapter in Matthew's gospel, but it is not the last chapter in Matthew's story. The arrangements suggest that Matthew understood the church as carrying on now the teaching and ministry of Jesus. We've mentioned throughout the podcast in this series, and you've no doubt noticed for yourself, that in each of the five previous major sections in Matthew's gospel, there is a section of narrative followed by an extended teaching block. But not here. This concluding narrative is not followed by an extended block of teaching, which leads scholars to conclude that it is the church who will provide that teaching, that will carry on, as it were, the ministry and message of Jesus Christ. Thus, Matthew's gospel tells a story that never really ends. Jesus continues to work and to speak through his people. Thanks be to God. But we mustn't get too far ahead of ourselves. When we left the story at the end of chapter 27, the chief priests and Pharisees had asked permission to send a troop of temple guards to make the tomb of Jesus secure, lest his disciples come and steal the body away. We pick up the story now in verse 1 of chapter 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb to visit and likely also to complete the task of preparing the body of Jesus. They may not have known about the guards as they were not posted until Saturday after the women had left. The early Christian practice of gathering for corporate worship early on Sunday morning, of course, traces back to the event of the resurrection. We pick up the story at verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, 
Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. It is, of course, remarkable that the first witnesses to the empty tomb were women. It is remarkable because women were generally not credited as legal witnesses in Jewish culture. I think there are a couple of implications to that. First of all, it argues strongly in favor of the historicity of this account. No Jewish man would have said it this way unless it happened this way. You can easily imagine Matthew thinking in his heart as he wrote this, Lord, I'm not sure this was the best way to do it, but I'm writing it down because I want to be faithful to what actually happened. That's easy to imagine. That Matthew invented this detail is not easily imagined. So I think this detail argues strongly in favor of the historicity of the event as here described. Secondly, I think it it does have to influence our discussion about gender and ministry. Now, I think this event is wrongly recruited to oppose what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.12 and elsewhere in his letters. Because I believe in a single author, ultimately for Holy Scripture, I don't believe that there would be any essential contradictions in the Bible. So I can't get on board with efforts to use this verse to prove that Jesus wanted women to be pastors and and then that he was somehow unable to get that information across to dear brother Paul. No, I'm far more inclined to think of a way to harmonize these realities. And it doesn't seem very difficult to me anyway to do that. I think we would have to say here that Jesus clearly intended for women to function as evangelists in the church. He has clearly arranged for them to function thusly in this passage that we're reading. So that is as clear as the nose on your face, as far as I can see. Women can and should serve as evangelists, as gospelers, as people who tell and who speak about the victory of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I I think that is very clear. However, equally clear to me is the fact that a pastor or elder is is an office and teaching with authority in the gathered church is a function that is assigned in the New Testament to qualified men. I don't see this as a contradiction. I see it as aligning very well with the general pattern of Holy Scripture as a whole. The Bible seems to say consistently that men and women are equal but different. And it would seem that, therefore, it is no assault on the dignity or worth of a person to suggest that there may be some different roles and functions assigned according to gender. And the Apostle Paul apparently saw no contradiction here either. In 1 Timothy 2, he can say that the authoritative preachers in the gathered service should be men, but without any sense of awkwardness, he can acknowledge in 2 Timothy 1.5, that Timothy was effectively evangelized by his mother and grandmother. So I think we do want to say loudly and with conviction that women can and should and, and have often been the most common and powerfully used evangelists throughout the history of the church. However, we should stop short of using that as an argument for the dissolution of all differences 
and distinctions between the sexes in the home and in the church. We are still male and female in the image and likeness of God, and we should be, and all the more should we be when we gather together as a church. Now, however necessary that is to say in our present cultural moment, it has obviously taken us a fair bit away from the main flow of the narrative. The women have seen the empty tomb, and they've been told by the angel to go and proclaim that truth to others. We pick up the story in verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So again, let's just take note of the fact that the first people to encounter the risen Christ were also women. And we should likewise notice that the commission given by the angel is repeated and affirmed here by Jesus himself. Women were treated with enormous dignity by the Lord and accorded great worth and trusted with great responsibility. And if that's how Jesus treated them, then that's how they ought to be treated in the church of Jesus Christ. Hey, Pastor Paul, I'd love to jump in here if I can, because I feel like you're making a really good point there, and yet that doesn't line up at all with what a lot of my non-Christian friends think the Bible says about women. Most of my non-Christian friends take as gospel the fact that the Bible denigrates women, and most of my non-Christian friends think that Christianity is part of the problem when it comes to women's rights. So how would you answer that? Has Christianity been a force for good or a force of repression when it comes to the dignity and status of women? Yeah, that's a good question. But to be perfectly honest with you, I don't imagine that very many people would have dreamed of even asking that question prior to 1960. Hmm. For most of human history, Christianity has been understood as a champion and liberator of women. Rodney Stark was a professor of social sciences. He just passed away recently, and he wrote extensively about the impact of Christianity on women in the ancient world, though he was not a believer himself. Here are a couple of quotes from the chapter on women in his book, The Triumph of Christianity. He said, Christianity seems to have been especially successful among women. It was often through the wives that it penetrated the upper classes of society in the first instance. He also said women were especially drawn to Christianity because it offered them a life that was so greatly superior to the life they otherwise would have led. Women in the early Christian communities were considerably better off than their pagan and even Jewish counterparts. Okay, so wait a second. Are you saying that Christianity was popular with women in the ancient world? Absolutely. Christianity was immensely attractive to women because it offered them far more status, far more freedom, far more dignity, and far better treatment than was available to them in either the Roman or Jewish context. The Bible said that women were created in the image and likeness of God, just like men. The Bible said that women were not a lesser class of human, which paganism did. The New Testament said that women could be disciples. They sat at the feet of Jesus and learned. They were welcomed into the assemblies of the early Christians. They participated in the meetings. Women were among Paul's church-planting co-workers. Phoebe is mentioned as a deacon and benefactor of the church in Sancria. All of that was revolutionary. And what Paul said about wives was unheard of as well. In 1 Corinthians 7, he said that women have authority over their husbands' bodies. 1 Corinthians 7, 4. 
I mean, though, do women want authority over their husbands' bodies? I'm just saying. Right. I hear you. But but actually, that is considered, even by non-Christian biblical scholars, as the most revolutionary thing said about sex and gender in the ancient world. The New Testament says that husbands and wives have a right to sexual pleasure, and they each need to be kind and generous to each other. No one had ever said that before. Then, in addition, Christianity forbade abortion and infanticide, which was very common in Roman society, and completely under the authority and discretion of the husband. So, long story short, pagan women flocked to Christianity because they knew that they would be far better treated in the churches, far better treated in the home, and much more likely to be able to raise the children that they conceived. All right, I didn't know that. Well then, how come feminists today seem to talk about Christianity as if it's the enemy instead of an ally? Well, that's complicated. Many of the key leaders in the first waves of feminism were Christians. Francis Willard, for example, was the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union from 1879 to 1898, which was the organization that was absolutely instrumental in earning the right for women to vote. It was Christian women driving that process. So again, historically, Christianity has been the driving force in empowering and protecting women. But that changed in the 1960s. The goals of the feminist movement changed in the 1960s, and the definition of equality changed as well. And of course, as you know, Christianity doesn't change, at least with respect to its doctrines and beliefs. And therefore, the perception became that Christianity was holding women back. The new definition of equality seems to be that to be equal, men and women have to be the same. But the Bible seems to say that men and women are equal but different. They are equal with respect to dignity and worth and equal with respect to their salvation graces, but different in terms of some of the primary roles and responsibilities they are assigned. Yeah, equal but different. I think we've talked about this before, but as this passage in Matthew 28 makes clear, equally involved in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ to every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. Yes. Now, while I do believe that the office of elder or pastor is assigned to men, and while I do see the responsibility of child-rearing being assigned top priority for women in places like 1 Timothy 2, I also see and celebrate what you are seeing in this passage, the fact that every born-again believer is and ought to be a full and enthusiastic partner in the Great Commission. Amen to that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, the Jews, of course, obviously understood that the empty tomb was a massive problem for them and a potentially massive propaganda tool for the early Christians from their perspective. It really does matter whether or not Jesus rose bodily from the dead. Leon Morris says here, that neither the Jews nor anybody else could produce the body of Jesus is of the utmost importance. Could this have been done, the story of the resurrection would have been exploded in a gale of laughter. 
But despite all their precautions, including the setting of a guard of soldiers, no body was ever produced. The empty tomb has always been important for Christians. Closed quote. Think about that. Why did the Jews not produce the body of Jesus? The simple answer is that they did not possess the body of Jesus, despite having put a guard around the tomb. So the best they could do was spread a story about some kind of reclamation mission pulled off by the disciples. But how are we to believe that the same ragtag group of cowards who abandoned him in the garden have now regrouped and somehow rediscovered their courage after the death of their leader? That doesn't make any sense. How would a group of mostly teenaged and young adult fishermen overpower a group of professional guards and soldiers? How would that work exactly? And and then why would they all die, many under cruel torture, for that lie? Again, that doesn't make any sense. What makes sense is the idea that Jesus was who he said he was, and he did what he said he would do. He rose physically, bodily, from the dead. Thanks be to God. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Once again, I suppose we're somewhat surprised that, that this phenomenal event is going to take place in Galilee, but it is of a piece with what we have seen already in Matthew's gospel. It reminds us that the light is often given in the darkest places, and it anticipates the spread of the message of the king and his kingdom to every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth. It is it is right and fitting that the message of the kingdom should go forth first from Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We should note, first of all, that authority in heaven and on earth has been given now already to Jesus Christ, R.T. France says helpfully here, this ingressive aorist has been given, thus indicates that the prophecy that the Son of Man would be enthroned as ruler of the world was fulfilled in the resurrection, close quote. That's very important for us to see. Jesus isn't in heaven waiting to rule. Jesus is in heaven reigning right now, ruling right now over all things for the good of his people and for the glory of his Father, forever. Jesus reigns right now. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm not sure what else that could mean. And because he has all authority, therefore, he says, his disciples are to go and make disciples of all nations. France says again here, Jesus' universal lordship now demands a universal mission. Close quote. That's exactly right. And that's why these instructions are so different from the ones he gave his disciples back in Matthew chapter 10. Back there, he told them to go only to the 12 tribes of Israel. But here now, they're being sent to every person, every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on Earth has been given to me. Jesus is Lord of all now, and that news needs to get out. 
There's only one imperative, one command in the Great Commission itself, though the associated participles likely also carry some imperatival force. The main command is to make disciples. Followers of Christ will do this by going into all the nations and by baptizing people and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. In terms of what it means to disciple someone or to make a disciple, John Broadus is very helpful here. He says, to disciple a person to Christ is to bring him into the relation of pupil to teacher, taking his yoke of authoritative instruction, accepting what he says as true because he says it and submitting to his requirements as right because he makes them. This great commission is binding upon all of the followers of Jesus Christ, not just the original disciples who heard of that day. D.A. Carson says here, the aim of Jesus' disciples, therefore, is to make disciples of all men everywhere without distinction, close quote. That's our aim. That's our ambition. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to go back to that definition of discipling that you cited. You said, quote, to disciple a person to Christ is to bring him into the relation of pupil to teacher, taking his yoke of authoritative instruction, accepting what he says as true because he says it, and submitting to his requirements as right because he makes them, end quote. Now, first of all, that sounds like a massive undertaking. <laughs> That's more than just getting people to recite the sinner's prayer. That sounds like total transformation that could take the better part of a lifetime. Yeah, I totally agree. It is a huge, all-encompassing endeavor that we can only even dream of doing by the grace and with the help of the Holy Spirit. Well, absolutely. And it sounds, too, like something that's bigger than just what happens in a local church. Am I right about that? Yes. I think the church has a huge role in this, obviously. But this is more than just a once-a-week thing. And this is more than just the pastor and the youth pastor. This is mom and dad. This is grandma and grandpa. This is every believer doing their part. Now, in one sense, all of those people, if they're Christians, are the church. But I think what you're saying is that this task is bigger than just what we do when we gather as the church on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. Yeah, exactly. I'm saying that we just can't expect the youth pastor to do this or the evangelist or the preacher. This, this is all hands on deck. Yes. When the church gets together on a Sunday morning, I think the goal of the pastor or preacher actually ought to be to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, as per Ephesians 4. Sunday morning is training time so that the saints can go out and make disciples everywhere they go for the rest of the week, at home, at work, at school, at the rink, at the diamond, everywhere. 100%. And not just all those places here, but all those places everywhere, even to the ends of the earth. Yeah, we still have a long way to go in terms of reaching the unreached peoples of the world. I would encourage everyone to check out the Joshua Project online. Just go to joshuaproject.net to see which people groups still need to have the Bible translated into their language so that they can begin to hear and believe the incredible gospel truths that we've had the privilege of discussing over the last 28 Sundays we've shared together. Speaking of that, we've come to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, so where are we planning on going next? I'm thinking we'll jump into the Acts of the Apostles so that we can see how this whole disciple-making project worked out in the first few generations of the church. Ah, that sounds awesome. I'm looking forward to it. 
As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 